Good morning. I'd like to welcome you to Prairie View Christian Church again. Thanks for joining us here this morning. So last week, continuing our current sermon series, Zach preached from 1 Thessalonians 2, 1 through 16. And we saw the messengers in verses 1 through 12. That would include the Apostle Paul and his partners, Silvanus and Timothy. They were godly, honest, selfless, and gentle. Paul may have felt the need to say these things about him and his partners to defend their credibility against those slandering him to the Thessalonians. We also saw the recipients in verses 13 through 16. That's the Thessalonians themselves. They were genuine believers of the gospel, imitators of Jesus, and sufferers for the cause of Christ. And we learned a little something about their opponents in verses 14 and 15. They were likely Jews who did not believe in Jesus and working to place obstacles in place of the Christians. But Paul said in verse 16 that these opponents of the church were ultimately destined for judgment. But what may be the most memorable takeaway comes from Paul's challenge in verse 12, that these believers walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. In other words, be who you are, a saint by faith in Jesus Christ. Be now who you will be in the future, a saint in God's presence. God has already declared you to be holy, so act like it. Don't just talk the talk. Walk the walk and do it in a way worthy of God. But this week we finish out chapter two and cover all 13 verses of chapter three. Before we move ahead, though, we would do well to remember the context of this letter. In Acts 17 verses one through 10, Paul was forced to flee the city of Thessalonica after a short time there, leaving this young small, suffering church to either sink or swim. And ever since, Paul had agonized over the fate of these believers. He longed to know how they were holding up without him. And that's why this letter exists. So today we'll read once again about Paul's love for these brothers and sisters in Christ. But we'll also see how Paul prays for them. And we'll see his underlying motivation for nurturing this church. So open up to 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 17. Feel free to use our Bibles if you didn't bring one, and take a Bible home if you don't have one. But before we read, let's pray. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for this time that we have together to worship you. I pray that our worship would be honoring to you. I pray that the words we say, the conversations that we have, the things that we do would all bring you glory, would be beneficial to us. And I pray that our worship wouldn't just be good or fitting or appropriate on the outside, but that you would help our hearts, Lord, help our minds to be set on you. 
purify us, cleanse us, sanctify us from the inside out so that worship is not just something that we do externally, as important as that is, but it's also something that comes from a heart internally that has been changed by you and changed by your word and changed by your spirit. Lord, as we come to worship week after week after week, I pray that we would never lose our sense of awe and wonder and gratitude for Christ. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for who you are and for what you did on the cross that we remember as we drink juice and eat bread. Lord, we thank you for that. And again, I pray that you'd help us be attentive to your word today. Change us, shape us, form us in your image so that we might walk in a manner worthy of the calling that you've given to us by your grace. We love you. We ask this all in Christ's name. Amen. Well, we'll start reading in 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 17. Paul writes, But since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time, in person, not in heart, we endeavored the more eagerly, And with great desire to see you face to face because we wanted to come to you. I, Paul, again and again, but Satan hindered us. For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. Continuing in chapter three. Therefore, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind at Athens alone. And we sent Timothy, our brother and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ, to establish and exhort you in your faith that no one be moved by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we are destined for this. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction, just as it has come to pass And just as you know, for this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. But now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us the good news of your faith and love and reported that you always remember us kindly and long to see us as we long to see you for this reason, brothers, In all our distress and affliction, we have been comforted about you through your faith. For now we live if you are standing fast in the Lord. For what thanksgiving can we return to God for you? For all the joy that we feel for your sake before our God, as we pray most earnestly night and day that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you. And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all, as we do for you, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. First, it's hard to read these verses and not notice, yet again, Paul's deep love for these people. Just look at some of the phrases that he uses. 
Chapter 2, verse 17, Paul was torn away from them. In the ancient world, that term was sometimes used for when parents were separated from their children. That's how close the relationship was. Verse 18, Paul says he has a great desire to see them. Verse 19, he wanted to come to them again and again. Verse 20, he calls them his hope, his glory and joy. In chapter 3, verse 1, Paul says he could no longer bear not knowing how they were doing. Verse 7, he longed to see them. Verse 12, Paul abounds in love for them. Paul's passionate care for these people just bursts forth from these pages. It's like when you read a love note between two teenagers And you can tell by the language just how head over heels they are for each other. The difference being, of course, that Paul's love for these people wasn't just a romantic flash in the pan. It was a spirit-inspired, godly care. So we talked about it back in chapter 1, and even before that a few weeks ago in Acts chapter 20. But it bears repeating. Paul loves these Christians Deeply. That's why he was willing to be left alone in Athens and send Timothy, someone he also deeply loves, just to check on them. So first we see Paul's love for these people. Second, we see Paul's prayer for these people. Theologian D.A. Carson notes that verses 11 through 13 are a great example of how Paul prayed for his fellow believers. And Carson encourages us to let Paul's prayers shape our prayers. That's another topic for another sermon, but how different might our prayers look if we modeled them after the apostle Paul? Well, Paul prays that the church in Thessalonica would grow in love. Now, that certainly includes love for one another within the church. But Paul makes a point to include those outside the church. And presumably, that would even include those causing these people so much grief. Paul prays that the church would be established. Look at how many times he uses that sort of language in chapter 3. Chapter 3, verse 2. Paul says he came or sent Timothy to establish and exhort you in your faith. Verse three, that no one be moved. Verse eight, he's comforted that they are standing fast in their faith. And then verse 13, he prays that they might be established by God in holiness. This church was facing opposition from Satan referred to as the tempter in chapter 3, verse 5, and from non-believing opponents. They were distressed. So Paul prays that they would be established, that they would stand firm, be constant, persevere. He prays that they would be strengthened, determined, fixed, and settled in their faith, even when the wind was against them. And even when threats were all around, he prays that they would be established. And Paul prays for their spiritual maturity. 
What does Paul pray that they would be established in? Verse 13 tells us the answer is holiness. Paul prays that these people, this church, would be sanctified. That by the Holy Spirit's power, they would slowly but surely start to look, feel, think, speak, and act more in line with Jesus. Even, or maybe especially, in the face of significant pressure. After all, that is where much spiritual maturing tends to take place. Under pressure. So we've seen Paul's love for these people. We've seen his prayer for these people. But last, we see Paul's underlying motivation for all of it. Why is Paul so personally invested in how this church is doing? Why does he so desperately want to be with them? Why is he so earnestly praying that they be established and maturing in their faith? Why does he say that they are his hope? They are his glory. They are his joy. Well, he tells us twice in these verses what motivates him. In chapter 2, verse 17, and in chapter 3, verse 13, Paul explicitly references Jesus' return. That's his motivation for what he's doing. That's his motivation for how he's feeling. That's his motivation for what he's writing. Jesus' return. Paul believes that one day, perhaps soon, Jesus would come as king and judge. Why does Paul believe that? Well, he believes it because Jesus said it. And if Jesus kept his word about his death, and he kept his word about his resurrection, then surely he'll keep his word on this promise as well. And as Paul looks at the future and considers the return of Christ, he wants to be ready. And he wants this church to be ready. For when that day arrives. So again, we see three big themes here. First, Paul's love for the Thessalonian believers. Second, Paul's prayer for them. And third, his underlying motivation for all of it. Paul longs to be with this church. He prays that they be established in their faith and growing in holiness And he does all of this because he knows that one day Christ will return. Now, next week, we'll talk about how this church may be falling short. We do get a clue about that in chapter 3, verse 10, where Paul mentions that something may be lacking in their faith. We'll talk more about that in the weeks ahead. The point is that this church wasn't perfect, but so far, most of Paul's prayer has been answered. He's not able to see them quite yet, but the Thessalonians are being established in the gospel. They're maturing in their faith, and they are faithfully waiting for Jesus' return. That is good news that Timothy delivered to Paul.
But what might Christians like us and a church like ours learn from this passage? Well, first, you need leaders who love you. If it sounds like I've been beating this dead horse lately, that's because I have. Sometimes the text hammers something home because it's just that important. And sometimes God generously, wisely, and providentially puts the same words, the same message in your path more than once to get your attention. And maybe this is one of those times. You need, I need, this church needs, every Christian needs, leaders who know us, love us, long to be with us, and pray for us. You need leaders who don't just view you as a face in a crowd, a contributor to the church's bottom line, or a customer to be satisfied, or a cat to be herded. Rather, you need leaders who view you as an image bearer of God, a brother or sister for whom Christ died, and a temple of the Holy Spirit entrusted to their care and entrusted to their discipleship. You need leaders with a passionate and godly love for you. Second, we too need to be further established and more consistently maturing in our faith in the face of opposition. As we saw in chapter 2, verse 18, the devil himself was trying to trip Paul up. We also saw that he was trying to lead the Thessalonians astray. Satan opposed Paul. He opposed the Thessalonians. And believe it or not, he opposes you. He opposes me. He opposes this church. He opposes anyone who loves Jesus. If you talk about Satan this way, you're not weird. You're biblical. The Apostle Peter refers to Satan as a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. There are spiritual powers and authorities that oppose the people of God. And we need God's help to be established and maturing in our faith so that we might resist them. But on top of Satan, we too have worldly opponents that we must deal with. If you haven't noticed, being a Christian, the kind who actually takes the Bible seriously, isn't getting any easier in our culture. There are people out there who have set themselves against the cause of Christ, even if they don't fully realize it. They may try to intimidate us, divide us, or sow seeds of doubt within our hearts and minds. And this shouldn't shock us. After all, Jesus said in John 15, verse 20, that if the world persecuted him, we should expect it to persecute us as well. The fact that most Christians in this room haven't experienced persecution may be an exception, not the rule. But with all that said, and while we do want to stand firm in the face of worldly opponents, we don't want to develop too much of an unhealthy combative us versus them mindset 
By all means, stand firm against those who oppose Christ. But don't forget to remember verse 12 of Paul's prayer. He prays that we would abound in love for all. And that means loving people who oppose us and oppose Christ. We also have our own sufferings, distresses, and afflictions that we have to face. Another big theme of this passage. In chapter 3, verse 3, Paul makes it clear that the Thessalonians should not have been surprised by suffering. And really, neither should we. In Acts chapter 14, verse 22, Paul teaches the believers in Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Suffering is not an indication that God doesn't love you anymore, that you don't have enough faith, or that you haven't prayed or spoken with enough confidence. Suffering is part and parcel of following the Lord who went to a cross himself and who calls people like us in a fallen world to take up our own crosses. So by God's grace, may we be established and growing in our faith, even or especially as we face opposition from Satan, the world, and face afflictions. And finally, we too ought to be motivated by the future reality of Christ's return. Now, some people might look at you kind of funny, and maybe rightfully so, if you obsess over this too much, to the point of foolishly trying to interpret everything that happens in our world as a sign, or naively trying to calculate the time or day of Jesus' coming, which he explicitly said that we cannot know. But do not be mistaken. We Christians really do believe that Jesus will return. And based on the way Scripture describes it, when it does happen, you'll know. This belief ought to instill in us a sense of urgency, not complacency. This future reality, this promise from Jesus' lips that he will fulfill, ought to motivate us to stay awake, to be ready, to make good use of the time, to walk now in a manner worthy of God, as we look forward to the day when we see his kingdom and see his glory in all its fullness. So as we've already seen, 1 Thessalonians comes across as one of Paul's most friendly and most personal letters. But even though Paul wrote it for a specific audience, in a specific time, in a specific place, there's still a great deal of insight for Christians like us and churches like ours. It's been said that the more things change, the more they stay the same. Or, as the preacher of Ecclesiastes puts it, there's nothing new under the sun. Like the Thessalonians, we too need leaders who love us, long to be with us, and pray for us. 
We too need to be established and maturing in our faith in the face of opposition. Whether it's from the devil himself, the surrounding world, or our sufferings, distresses, and afflictions, we must endure. And we too must remember and be motivated by the future reality of Christ's return. Staying awake, being ready, making good use of the time. And by the Spirit's power, by the Word's guidance, and with the encouragement of fellow believers around us, may we continue learning to walk in a manner worthy of God as we wait for Him to return. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for this time that we have together. Thank you for your word. That in some ways is very time specific, but in other ways is universal. Lord, I pray that we would learn from Paul's love for the Thessalonians. That we would seek out Christian leaders who love us and care for us. And that the Christian leaders here at this church would be the kind of leaders you call us to be. And I pray for this church, that like the church in Thessalonica a long time ago, that we would be established in the faith, that we would be maturing in holiness, that we would grow in love for each other and for all. I pray that we would be steadfast and immovable in our faith, in our trust, in our obedience. And Lord, I also pray that you would help us suffer well. Help us endure persecutions. Help us face distresses and afflictions with a peace that surpasses all understanding. I pray that as we suffer, like other people in this world, that we wouldn't suffer without hope. That we wouldn't grieve without hope. And that maybe our hope and our confidence and our joy in the midst of afflictions and distresses might cause people to ask questions and want to learn more about what motivates us. And speaking of our motivation, I pray that we would continually be motivated by Christ's return. It's strange to think about. It's hard to wrap our minds around. But, Lord, I pray that you would keep that promise front and center in our minds. That as sure as the crucifixion and as sure as the resurrection and as sure as the ascension, Christ's return one day is sure. And so I pray that we would make good use of the time. That we would stay ready. That we would stay awake. And that we'd walk in a manner worthy of the calling that you've given to us by your grace. Again, you've declared us to be saints by faith in Christ. So I pray that we would live like it. Help us act like it. Help us embrace our identity as saints that you have so kindly and so generously given to us. Again, Lord, we love you. We praise you. We glorify you. Thank you for your word. Thank you for this morning. Thank you for this time we've had together. We ask this all in Christ's name. Amen.